0: But for those of you who are visitors, we're glad to see you here. We're looking at the Song of Solomon. And what I've been saying every time we look at it is that it is we're looking at it in two ways. It is a love poem, and it's a fairly explicit and erotic love poem that's there in the Bible. And we also are looking at it as an illustration, not an analogy, as an illustration of the relationship between Christ and his church based on the fact on two things. One is that all Scripture does speak about Christ, and the other is that the marriage is, in the New Testament and the Old Testament, is seen as the supreme illustration of the relationship between God and His people. Now, each time I've done this, I've said the chapter gets more difficult. This is the most difficult chapter to speak on, and um, please forgive me if <coughs> I, I was, I'm hoping to keep it relatively short. I want to give some just basic principles involved. By the way, this is the only chapter where the man speaks virtually all the time. It's uh, the, most of the, what we're going to look at is coming from the perspective of the man. And I want to make some general observations, first of all, before we look at this chapter, uh, on how we regard and speak about our bodies. Um, that is, that's the, the sheet that I gave the guys because... It's very, very interesting how we speak about our bodies and in different cultures, how we speak about our bodies. Uh, I don't speak about my body. That's pretty the way it's always been. But uh, there is no question at all that we obviously have to at times and that uh, here in this passage, there's some fairly straightforward speaking about the human body. We kind of read this chapter, and when I read it, I am fairly certain that some of you were smiling because images of uh, your hair is like a flock of goats probably doesn't go too well with, with most of you. Um, but it is, the human body is amazing when you think about it. C.S. Lewis says that the oldest joke in the world is that we have bodies. And there's a temptation sometimes to look at God and say, why have you made me like this? We don't like being reminded of our earthiness. There's some degree of embarrassment. Martin Luther, who is about as earthy as you could get and who said things that were totally outrageous and that would never say in a church. Um, Martin Luther, even he, said this, the reproduction of mankind is a great marvel and mystery. Had God consulted me on the matter, I should have advised him to continue the generation of the species by fashioning of clay. But that's not how God designed the human body. Now, it's very, very important when we are talking about sexual unions, we're saying this is something that God designed, and to be frank, at times, it's quite ridiculous. You, know, are, 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 you, can, you, you are allowed to laugh, and you are allowed to laugh at, uh, at, at your body as well as to admire it. Now, one of the problems in the church over the, over the ages, sadly, has been the legacy of St. Augustine. Uh, Augustine, who is, is a man who I totally admire. And I love his books, but in this one area, it, there's been a great deal of harm done because he adopted what's called the platonic view of the body. He believed that um, sex was a gift of God, but only for producing children. And for any other purpose, that was sinful. He, and he believed that original, same, original sin came through the act of sexual intercourse. And so there grew up this teaching Augustine wasn't the first to teach it, but it was this kind of view that in church or amongst decent people, you you didn't talk in the kind of terms that are spoken of here. But this is the word of God, and I think uh, Augustine was wrong. There's another issue involved here in terms of how we speak of our bodies. There could be many reasons for why we struggle with our bodies. Um... Fears stemming from bad experiences in the past, bad teaching, fear of being laughed at, abused, taken advantage of, fear of failure, inadequacy. It can be very difficult. You know, um, I fully accept that I am not Brad Pitt, and um, I normally, I wouldn't stand up in front of you forgive me saying this, and say, look at this body, you two could have a body like this, because not many of you would be immediately drawn to say, why? Or or you would say, why? You wouldn't. Um, The way that we look at our bodies and our culture is hugely, hugely important. There's so much in terms of image, and the church does need to address the issue. I I read this week with some degree of horror that the number of girls who are self-harming has doubled in the past four years and a huge part of that is concerned with image and body image and, of course, anorexia. One in four anorexics is now male, by the way. Uh, It's anorexia and bulimia nervosa and so on. Other eating disorders are all concerned with image and to do with the body. There are a lot of um, sexual dysfunctionality and so on that has to do with the body and how we think about the body. I don't often do this, but I happen to be in a house, staying in a house, where I went into the bathroom, and I like having something to read when I'm in the bathroom, but the only thing that was there was Cosmo. Now, I had no idea what Cosmo was really like. I have an idea now. Um, i absolutely astonished that anyone would actually read it, but it's just, if, if sorry, uh, this sounds really ridiculous, but if I was a woman and I was, had to read Cosmo as my ideal of what womanhood would be, I'd be so depressed. It was just absolutely incredible, the kind of pressures that are are put on people. Now here in this passage, when it speaks about the human body, it does so in a very interesting way, and in terms of, this is a passage where we've got to the wedding night, we've got to the wedding and the wedding night, and in terms of the question of sexual union, there's the build-up and the gradual self-giving and the freedom that exists of physical love. There are risks, there are fears, and so on. But that's what is being mentioned here. Now, I also have to say something about the use of language. A lot of our language about sexual union is coarse and vulgar. It's where many of our swear words come from. And some people say, well, you can't see that in front of the children. Well, if they, in the school playground, they, they hear it all, all the time anyway. The language used here. Is not coarse and it's not vulgar. It is evocative, but it's restrained. You could read this whole passage, which is the most explicit passage in the book, and not really get what it's talking about. Because it does speak with a lot of euphemisms. Now, C.S. Lewis has a really interesting thing to say about the the use of (coughs) language in this respect. And I I thought it was so interesting, I put it up. I'm sorry, it's a long quote, but I put it up there for for you to see. And if anyone wants it, you can email me and I'll send it to you. This is what he says. I'm sorry to have to go into all these details, but I must. The reason why I must is that you and I, for the last 20 years, have been fed all day long solid lies about sex. We've been told, until one is sick of hearing it, that sexual desire is in the same state as any of our other natural desires, and that if only we abandoned the silly old Victorian idea of hushing it up, everything in the garden would be lovely. It is not true. There is something very powerful about sexual imagery and it needs to be handled with a great deal of care. We are saturated with images of eroticism, particularly in the advertising world. Our current society has an insatiable need for sexual fulfillment. Television, Hollywood, literature, popular music, they're all obsessed with hedonistic sexuality." So in actual fact, both in the passage here and also in how we speak, there should be an element of restraint. There should be an element of there are things that you would say in public and there are other things that you you wouldn't say (coughs) in public, but there also should be, obviously, an element of frankness and of openness. So, having said all that as an introduction, we're going to do the two, well, there's three parts to this. First of all, there's the description, verses 1 to 7, man is there on his wedding night and he looks at uh, his wife, and this is what he says about his wife, and um, it is I've said this before, when people come down here and they're getting married, and the guy turns and he sees his bride, every guy I know, the look on their faces, wow, what did I do to deserve this? And that's really what's going on here. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Now, the passage is a type of Arabic poetry known as wasf, which describes parts of the body. Um, most of us would just not be comfortable with that. We'd go into our partners and saying, uh, by the way, uh, this is really beautiful, that's really beautiful, that's really beautiful. But that, this is is how it was done. Most of the images here are drawn from the animal and the agricultural world with one military. And I'm just going to go through them for you with one or two comments. Your eyes, he begins with, and basically he works from the head down and he stops before the waist uh, later on in, in, the, in the song, he, he'll come to other parts of the body, but uh, he kind of gets carried away, verses one to seven. First of all, the eyes. The eyes behind your veil are doves, in terms of gentleness and peacefulness and so on. Actually, what's really interesting in that aspect is the whole aspect of the veil. The veil acts as a barrier, and she has to be unveiled if there is to be intimacy the eyes being the most revealing part of the whole body. We all wear veils and masks to protect our insecurities. And these are not just physical veils. Sometimes we put blocks in the way and it can be really, really hard to get to know somebody. But in the context of marriage, there's a relationship of love, and of trust, and of mutual acceptance. And that is the only context, as we said last week, in which sexual union is appropriate precisely because of the intimacy that's involved. So he begins with the eyes. He then goes on to the hair. Your hair is like a a flock of goats. (coughs) <coughs> descending from Mount Gilead, we have this image of goats as being smelly and so on, and so you don't really want to be told your hair is like a flock of goats, and if you go to your hairdresser tomorrow and say, please make my hair like a flock of goats, they're probably not going to grasp what you're talking about. But it just has this idea of the flowing locks. A man called, a uh, poet called Longfellow said, not ten yoke of oxen have the power to draw us like a woman's hair. And the Apostle Paul agreed, First Corinthians eleven, fifteen a woman's hair is her glory. Uh, It's why uh, there's so many hairdressers. It's still the case. It's always been the case in in every culture. It's not quite the same for men, though in our more androgynous society, things may be changing. It's not an issue for some of us, though. But certainly here and in that culture, and in, in our cultures too, the hair was considered to be particularly important The teeth, your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn coming up from the washing. Each has its twin, not one of them is alone. Again, not many of you ladies want to be told that your teeth are like sheep. Um, Actually, it's a great image when you think about it. What's he saying? Three things. First of all, he's saying your teeth, not one of them is missing. You've got all your teeth, which is quite important. Secondly, he's saying your teeth are well-placed. They're perfectly matched. Each got a twin. So you, you actually, you, you go to the dentist. The dentist will be really, really pleased. You've got one tooth there, one tooth there, and it's all matching up. And you're, all the lang- strange language that dentists use, you know, your A or B, or I don't know what it is, but you know, it's all there. It's all, it's all matching. Um, and she smiles when she sees him, and this is the perfect Colgate moment. She's got shining teeth. Uh, it's an image, I think, that actually we can... We can recognize her lips, verse 3. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon, and that is referring to lipstick. Again, it's incredible how almost in every culture, lipstick has been used to enhance the attractiveness of the woman. And then the mouth. Apart from the eyes, the mouth is the most important indicator of our inner state and I'm not talking about what you speak, I'm talking about how you express yourself. You can see the way someone curls up or smiles or what we do with our mouth is a huge important part of body language. (coughs) The temples, talking about rosy cheeks, uh, the Tower of Lebanon, uh, it's one of these expressions that people think, what does that mean? Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with elegance, on it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. She's basically saying, you're a woman who holds her head high. There are a thousand shields, but the man, that's a thousand warriors. The man only had 60. Back to chapter 3 in verse 7. They're decorated and built up in layers. It's the difference between, let's say, the Maasai women of Africa, who have the, you know, the necklace, the things that all go around like that, and what I saw yesterday, the England prop forwards, who don't seem to have any necks. You know, so, so he's really saying... That Scotland probably as well, but he's really saying that um, to this woman that you've just you've got a beautiful neck. It's like a tower. It really is a compliment. Your breasts are like fawns, and what he's talking about there is is obvious, but it, it's the most powerful visible expression of her femininity, and he's admiring that. Verse six, I will go to the mountain of Myrrh and to the hill of incense. He is talking about making love, and he's saying, that's what I'm going to do. And then in verse 7, as he's looking at her, he's stunned. All beautiful you are, my darling, there is no flaw in you. Love is blind. French proverb says this, beauty is silent eloquence. Giovanni Leone, an Italian, I don't want to engage in racial stereotypes, but this is what he said, the strongest evidence to prove that God exists is a beautiful woman. It was just, this guy is just absolutely smitten with his, his wife. And there is nothing crass, there is nothing crude, there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. Second part is the anticipation, verses 8 to 15, <coughs> where he, he's inviting her to come with him. It's moving from invitation through captivation of his own heart, to celebration. He talks about coming with me from Lebanon, descend from the crest of Ammona, and so on, and um, from the lion's den, the mountain haunts of the leopards. And there are two images, two ideas there that are being taught. One is accessibility. You're in Lebanon. You can come down from the mountains of Lebanon. And the other is danger. You're in danger. Come to me. Because he says you have (coughs) stolen my heart, verse 9, my sister, my bride. And this is the first time he uses the term bride. He talks about how delightful her love is, how much more pleasing is her love than wine, how her perfume and her her lips drop sweetness, which could either be referring to how she speaks or to kissing. (coughs) And then again in verse 12, He calls her my sister, my bride. And then he speaks of her as being a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain, a garden locked up. Now, there are two things that I want to say about that. The first is he calls her my sister. If, and I say this to the young people here, if you're going to marry somebody, then one of the things that you should make sure as a Christian is that they are your brother or your sister in Christ. You've got to have the kind of relationship where you can share everything. it's more than that because it's my sister and my bride, and that's different. But you, you have to have that as well. And then this aspect of the garden locked up, the enclosed spring, the fountain sealed. That's very direct, it's very straightforward, and it's very simple. And what he is saying to her is that she, her body is a, a private garden, not a public park. And what he's saying is, you've kept your body for me. And he's saying, I am now looking forward to enjoying that. That's back to the whole idea of chastity and virginity and so on. People laughed at, and they still laugh, <coughs> the whole idea of abstinence teaching and the whole idea of people saving themselves until they're married. But the Bible just talks about that as being such a wonderful thing. And in fact, I think it's uh, something that you just make. You just, in your head, you just determine I am not going to have sex until I get married. Now, it may be that there are people who say, well, that's already too late. It may be that there are people who say, that wasn't like for me when I got married. And are you saying that my marriage is therefore not perfect? Well, first of all, no marriage is perfect. But secondly, of course, in Christ we receive forgiveness, but we're talking about what we should be doing and what's right and what's wrong. You can lie, but you can be forgiven. It doesn't mean to say that you could therefore carry on lying and it's the same thing. And here he, he is praising her because she's kept her body. Now, the same thing obviously works in reverse. This is not a, a misogynistic kind of male dominance thing. It's, you know, my body. Paul puts it very straightforward. He says that the, the husband's body also belongs to the wife, as the wife's body belongs to the husband. And here they're celebrating that and rejoicing in that. She's a garden locked up, an enclosed spring, a fountain sealed. And again, I just want to stress that to those of you who find yourself continually coming under the pressure, saying, what's wrong with you? What do you mean you don't sleep around? What do you mean you haven't had sex? What's wrong with you? What kind of, you know, 99.9% people have, which is rubbish, but that's to say, here's the pressure, continual pressure put on. And it's actually a really great deal just to say, no, I'm sorry, I'm not going to. I'm going to save that for the one person I intend to marry. And if that doesn't happen, I'm not going to do it. It's too intimate. It's too private. I'm not a public park, but a private garden. Then he goes on to talk about a list of fruits and spices. Um, (coughs) Many of them were, were not native to Israel and the suggestion is there, just in fact the whole language is 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 very stunning and very evocative and, and very exotic and and fanciful. So he's just basically saying, I'm this is where I'm going. This is what I've been looking for. This beautiful woman has been waiting for me and I am going to enjoy. And As I say, you could put that also in reverse, and you'll see that in other parts of the Song of Solomon. In uh, Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 15, we read this, "'Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer.' May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? The whole point about the exclusivity of marriage, about the binding together of one man and one woman, is not as we so often teach it, and you so often get this image in the church as of you shall not. It's an entirely negative prohibition. The whole image is, is actually almost the other way. It's saying, you shall, and because you shall, then you shall not. In other words, if you really want to have this kind of intimacy, you can only have that with one person. You don't have it with lots of other people. And that's why the, it's a very crude expression, and I think a wrong expression when people talk about having sex. That's wrong. It's not... It, it, it's, It it misses entirely the beauty and the intimacy and everything that is involved. So, that's what Solomon is is, is talking about. By the way, Solomon, of course, broke his own rule. He ended up with 700 wives and 300 concubines, many of them for political reasons and other reasons. And then verses 16 to Chapter 5, verse 1, <coughs> there's the consummation of the marriage night. And it's again very straightforward. There's an invitation, verse 16. Uh, he says, Awake. Now, earlier, they've been told, Awake, North Wind. And earlier, they've been said, Don't awake in love until it's so desired. Don't awake. But now is the time to awake. Now is not the time for restraint. It's your wedding night. It's not the time for restraint. The culture at that time, and in the time of Jesus, meant that you had your wedding, your wedding night, You consummated your uh, marriage that night, and then you spent a week in celebration with all your friends. You didn't disappear off on honeymoon. Here he's saying, now is the time awake. It's not reluctant. Chapter 5, verse 1 just describes the consummation. I've come into my garden. I've gathered my myrrh. I've eaten my honeycomb. I've drunk my wine and my milk. Isn't that so much more beautiful than I had sex. Isn't it? It's just, it's a completely different thing. And notice the possessiveness of it. Eight times is the strong possessive, my, my garden, my bride, my honey, my wine, my, my milk. This is not the kind of cheap language of conquest, male domination. Because she says exactly the same. It's the mutual, ultimate belonging to one another. And that's why that last line, (coughs) which says, friends in the NIV, eat all friends and drink, drink your fill, oh lovers, that's just celebrating and affirming that that's what they are doing. Now, that's the plain and straightforward meaning of what is being said there. It makes perfect sense. It fits into a holistic and a much, much better view of sex and relationships, which is why if You've already gone down the wrong road. You do need to repent and to seek God's forgiveness, knowing that he grants that, and seeking to live a new life before him. But it's also why, if you haven't gone down that road and you're thinking, what am I missing out? I'm a religious person. It means I'm frigid. I'm a religious person. It means um, uh, I'm missing out on all the fun in life. Actually, no, you're not. What you're missing out is a lot of the pain and a lot of the heartache. And it may be, not everyone is going to get married, but the majority of people will. And what will happen? It means this, that providing you have an adequate understanding, and that's why we teach this, not this kind of reluctant view, it means that you can fully enjoy and celebrate being united in in one body and, and spirit together. That's why Paul says again in Corinthians, why do you want to go and unite your body with a prostitute? Don't you realize you become one? Don't do that. So it's, it's, what I'm trying to say is this is an incredibly positive uh, affirmation of sexuality, of human sexuality, on the Bible's teaching about sex within the context of marriage. Don't ever let anyone say to you, Uh, it's it's all about being negative it's all about not doing actually it's all about doing but in the right context and those who don't accept that can't do it in the right context and um, let me uh, I'm going to pray just now and I want to pray for a particular reason and then we'll just briefly look at how we apply this in terms of the church so let me first pray Lord Some of us sit embarrassed here because we know we haven't behaved like this. We know that whether literally physically or with our eyes or in our (coughs) minds, we are adulterers and adulteresses. And we ask forgiveness. We know, Lord, that it's far too easy for us to buy into the cheap and shoddy image of the human body that so degrades and so demeans and so abuses. And some of us are embarrassed because we don't like to talk about personal things, what we term personal things, and yet this is in your Word. And we pray that you would help us overcome our fears and our embarrassments, that we would learn to express appreciation in a proper way and to express our sexuality in the way that you intended. And we pray, O oh God, especially for the young people here that in a, in a culture which so uh, attacks this teaching, <coughs> that you would enable them to resist all these attacks and to live before you and before one another in honesty and reality and purity. For we ask it in your name. Amen. Okay, I do want to... uh, Last couple of times, it was kind of more obvious how it applied to the church. Um, This time, I want to do it again, but slightly differently. In Revelation uh, 21, verse 2, it talks about the church being the bride of Christ. I want to use that again, and I just want to use two images as we think about that that come from this passage. One is the image of the bride as being beautiful. Now, we've had... The bridegroom standing there looking at his bride and going, You are absolutely stunning. And going through that whole description. Revelation 21 2 talks about the church coming and Jesus waiting for his stunning bride. But here is the problem I have with that image. And again, forgive me for being very direct about this. Is the church really beautiful? There is almost nothing that has made me want to give up more than the church. Sometimes you see such ugliness, such backbiting, such bitterness, such hatred, such unwillingness to forgive, such pretentiousness, people so self-focused, people well, let's go to Galatians, and you'll see what I mean. Galatians chapter 5, <coughs> and you see how the New Testament addresses this. It's on page 1,172. Verse 13, you, my brothers, were called to be free, Galatians five thirteen. but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, rather serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 15, if you keep on biting and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. Most churches are not destroyed by the devil coming in and possessing people. Most churches are not destroyed by people from outside attacking the church. Most churches, and I include in this Churches where people profess to be evangelical Christians and probably are evangelical Christians are destroyed because we bite and devour each other. Because there's a sinful nature and because we indulge that sinful nature. The church is sometimes very, very ugly. And sometimes we can say that And we can look in the mirror and we can say, well, I'm part of that. There are other times when the church is very beautiful. It's not, you can't just say, people get so discouraged and they get so depressed and so frustrated and so angry and so hurt and so wounded. And you want to give up. And I've been there many, many times. You you want to say, "I, I just... Let me go and be an individual Christian. Let me go and be a mystic. Let me go off to a monastery. I was speaking to some people this week whose whose idea was, Well, we live in this world, and we live in this church. What we need to do is every weekend get away to a monastery every now and then and, and we'll reclaim our spirituality and so on. And I'm not slagging off going off for retreats and stuff. But why can't we have the church being beautiful in day to day life? I think we can. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there's no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. The church can be beautiful. It can be incredibly attractive. It can be a place when you're built up Where you're wounded, you're healed. When you're sick, you're made better. When you're discouraged, you're encouraged. When you're beaten down by your own stupidity and ignorance, that people come alongside you and help you. The church has to be that because the church is going to be the bride of Christ, and the church is going to be beautiful. Now, that's why I put the John 15 passage there. I'll not read it. You can read the whole of John 15 if you want, but because this is back to being the garden. My bride is a garden. Who is the gardener? My Father, says Jesus, is the gardener. And what does he do? He cuts off the branches that don't bear any fruit. You're not getting to be the bride of Christ if you bear no fruit. You, you, there are parts of the church that are literally deadwood, that have no life in them, that are just nominal, or have nothing of the Spirit of Christ, and they don't really belong. They'll be cut off. But the more interesting part for me (coughs) is in John 15, he says, the parts that do bear fruit, he prunes. If we want to be the beautiful bride of Christ, then in order to bear fruit and to be the beautiful, fruitful church of Jesus Christ, we are going to have some hard dealings with the Lord and some tough times and some struggles. And here's the problem. Most of us are not prepared to do that. We, we want to go from one thing to another, to another, to another. We are not prepared to be made beautiful. And we have to deal with that. We have to, and I'm not sure how we deal with that, except perhaps the song that we sung about, May I Never Forget the Wonder of the Cross. That you know, as blood runs down, those, that wood. That is the price that Christ paid to make you and I as Christians beautiful. So why wallow in the mud? Why be ugly? Why not follow Jesus Christ? Looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb by seeking to have the beauty Of the Lord our God upon us. And that means, as we saw this morning, no hatred, no bitterness, no, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. It means no exclusivity, no shutting out people. It means stop moaning, stop complaining. It means stop being self focused. It means taking up our cross and following Jesus. It means being together the body and the family of the living God. May he grant that it would be so. Let's pray. Lord, bless your word to us and help us as we reflect upon it. Help us to be your bride. Anyone who doesn't know you, we ask that they would come to know you. And those of us who do and who've become so disillusioned with ourselves and so disillusioned with your church, Lord, we admit there's an ugliness there. Grant beauty. Grant that your beauty would be upon us. Cleanse us, renew us, forgive us, restore us. For we ask it in your name. Amen.